All right, let's read. All right, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write, their, write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one, one his neighbor each one his, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. My vote would be a hard skip on the bump video. Let's see. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody in the in the mode now. Here we go. All right. Uh, shout out to those who are on the call uh, for persevering through all of this. You guys are awesome. You guys have to sit here. I mean, it'd be super awkward if you just stood up and left. But uh, the people on the call. Thank you for persevering with us. Uh, the letter of Hebrews has very much been the, this pastor talking to this community that is discouraged, that is in the midst of uh, just tremendous pain and trial, that doesn't seem disconnected from their faith, but seems deeply connected to their faith in the sense of they're suffering because they are Christians. They're suffering because they have departed from an old way of life and are now living in the new way of Jesus and facing wind in their face for that choice. And so this pastor, as we said last week, who knows them deeply, has said again and again uh, two things, two things that I think needs to be said to all of us along the journey of faith. One is an acknowledgement that, yeah, this is really hard. In empathetic coming alongside and saying, um, I know that following Jesus is difficult. Following Jesus is uh, even as the Lord himself advertised, it feels like picking up our cross daily and following him. And that means pain and struggle and difficulty. The other thing, though, that the pastor wants to say is even as that empathetic arm is put uh, around them, he wants to move them forward by saying, um, and yet in the midst of that difficulty, you have received everything necessary to put one foot in front of the other. You have received everything 
necessary in order to get to your destination, which he defines as, uh, as we talked about and summarized last week, this beautiful image of rest, cosmic soul level rest that we are moving towards, that is the reward at the end of the journey. And he says, you will get there. And you will get there not because of something about your own self, but because of the one who comes alongside you in this journey. In fact, because of the one who has gone ahead of you, who has already taken this journey and now comes alongside you in it and says, I know the way forward. And again and again, Jesus is spoken of as the one who is better than other resources that we could turn to in the midst of that journey whether those be worldly resources, whether those be things that uh, we tend to turn to when we're discouraged, when we want to numb the pain of the journey of faith. Better, better, better is what's said again and again about Jesus. And today, we look specifically about what the author of Hebrews, what this pastor means by talking about a better covenant. It's why I had Melly read a couple verses uh, back into the passage that we were in last week. So just listen to this language here. The pastor says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, and that ministry is what we've been talking about. He's the chief priest. He is the one that goes before God on our behalf. That is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. As the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted, that covenant is enacted, is legally sanctioned on better promises. So this covenant makes promises to us, and both the covenant and those promises are better. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then we have what actually turns out to be the longest um, quotation of an Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. This entire thing from here down through verse 12 is taken up from Jeremiah 31, from this prophetic voice. A prophet is one who speaks the words of God to the people of God. It is this prophetic voice from the Old Testament, and this entire quotation is just picked up here to define what the pastor means by this better covenant, or as Jeremiah himself calls it in verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then if you jump down to verse 13, again, it's called, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. All right, so before we jump into this, we have to talk a little bit about what a covenant is, because this is not language that we use a lot in modern culture, but would have been very, very familiar to the people reading this letter. A covenant is, uh, think of a contract, and what a contract is, is that me and Obed go into business with one another and we write something up that, that explains the obligations that we have between one another. And if those obligations are broken, there will be certain penalties for those. What a covenant is, is it's like a contract, but it ups the ante significantly because it actually brings God into the equation. So if you picture a contract as between person A and person B, and that contract exists here, a covenant actually is a triangulated contract that includes God, that actually makes God the one to whom we are ultimately accountable and the one who gets to choose how to penalize and punish the, the non-fulfillment of those obligations. 
And so in the, in the ancient world, you wouldn't just make contracts. Often you would be making covenants with people because you would be calling upon God uh, to, to be a part of that relationship and arrangement. The, the, the clearest example, not even example, the, the clearest application of this that we have in modern time, really the only one that I can think of that is, is really familiar to us is what? Marriage, yeah, marriage. This is, this is why uh, when we make commitments, when we make vows in marriage, when we make the contract of marriage, still in Western culture, the vast majority of people will say vows that then invoke who? Not just one another, but they invoke the name of God. Because throughout its, its history, at least in a Judeo-Christian environment, marriage was very much seen as a covenant. It is, it is in many ways, especially biblically, it is the, the covenant par excellence that we as human beings involve ourselves in. We make a commitment to another person, but then we call upon God to both be the one uh, who, yeah, who, who gets to decide how one is punished if, if they're not obligated, but probably a, a far more uh, like positive way of looking at that is that we are asking God to involve himself in that relationship, to be a part of what sustains that relationship. And so uh, it's always a very interesting thing to, to watch people make vows who, who maybe don't have necessarily belief in God, and yet they're invoking the name of God to help them with that. And so this can be something that's just done in a rote way. It's the right thing to do. It's maybe what a family wants. Them. But it's a very serious and very significant thing to do to make vows that invoke the name of God. When God makes relationships with his people throughout the Bible, and just follow me here, we're headed somewhere. When God makes relationships, he makes them as covenants which if you think about it, begs the question, well, if that covenant relationship is between God and his people, who ultimately is on the line to decide what happens if that goes wrongly? And who ultimately is going to sustain that covenant when God himself is part of this, this aspect of the covenant? And the stunning truth of the scriptures, and actually in the, in the passage that Pastor Rich preached uh, a couple weeks back, the author of Hebrews covers this. He says, when a covenant is made, something has to be sworn by. And yet, if God is part of his covenant with us, then God can swear by no greater thing. What he's getting at there is that God ultimately puts himself on the line and says, I will do everything necessary to make right what could go wrong in this covenant, even though I myself have committed myself to you. And ultimately, the trajectory of God's covenant with us is that God does put himself on the line when that covenant goes wrong. God is solely responsible for putting right. Amazingly, the God of the universe, the creator, commits himself to broken, fail, in, frail, insignificant people like us, and yet himself makes himself fully accountable for whether that thing goes right or wrong. Do you hear the grace in that from the beginning? A lot of people talk about these covenants as, as though some of them are based on this pure, uh, kind of cold-blooded law, and then some of them, the new covenant, are based on great. No, no, no. A covenant, the fact that God would covenant with anyone at any time in history is an act of grace. All of the covenants have the grace of God's commitment, of God binding himself to us as the core of what they are. And so what makes this covenant new? What makes this one? Now, 
there's a lot of background that we could do here, but I'm, I'm not going to be able to do nearly all of it. But suffice to say, Jeremiah is a prophet writing in one of the darkest times in God's people's history, in Israel's history. It's a time where they're in exile. It's a time where they're removed from their homeland. It's a time where they are very clearly under the punishment of God, where they are under his judgment, and they can feel that in real time. That's not a spiritual reality. That's something they can look around themselves and say, we are not home. We are in a foreign land. We are not free. We, we are under the thumb of an oppressive empire. We are clearly not where we are supposed to be. And into that, God gives this word to the prophet Jeremiah that says the following. Now listen to this, this prophecy with that kind of context in mind. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And if you're living in that time, hearing these words, you can't help but feel a, a, kind, of, a kind of rising of hope that, oh, maybe God's not done with it. Maybe this isn't the end of what God's faithfulness to us looks like. And he says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed, them, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Okay, so he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's not going to be like the old covenant. Did you notice the way in which it won't be like the old covenant? I'll give you a hint. It's also in verse 8 when he introduces this, when, when the writer of Hebrews introduces this whole thing, we're tempted, right? What I don't want you to leave here this morning, what I never want us leaving with is a sense of the Old Testament got it wrong and the New Testament gets it right. God in the Old Testament didn't know what he was doing. Now he does know what he's doing in the New Testament. God in the Old Testament wasn't faithful to his covenant because he was angry and wrathful all the time. And then he got who knows what, good therapy or something. And in the New Testament, he's happy and welcoming and full of grace. This is a false notion of who God is. It's a heresy. It's dangerous. It leads to not only all kinds of weird things that we can do with the Bible, it also leads to incredibly violent, horrible consequences in the world. This is often the root of anti-Semitism, quite frankly, is the idea that God hated a certain people or that a certain people weren't standing under the, a gracious God's relationship, but were actually under the hateful hand of him and therefore need to be suppressed by his people. To, this, is, this is incredibly sinful, wicked ideology. No, no, we have a consistent God who is consistently pursuing people. And as, as one theologian puts it, that all nations, including the United States of America today and every nation that's gone before us, all nations are meant to find in Israel our own failures and our own blessings. And this actually goes all the way back to the very first covenant God made with Abraham in which he said, through you and through the nation that will come from you, all nations will be blessed. You see, God is working out his plan through these covenants. And yet the fault of the covenant not working is not ultimately on God. It says what? It says he finds fault with it. He finds fault with the covenant. He finds fault with himself. No, who does he find fault with? He finds fault with them when he says. And then look at verse 9. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For... 
How is it not like it? For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them. I had to be faithful to what the covenant said. If there is a lack of faithfulness on one side, there, there needs to be judgment and punishment for that. Now here's what's stunning, is God has committed himself, though, to this people. And so instead of saying judgment, punishment, full stop, the end, he says, no, a new covenant is needed. And the difference of this new covenant will be that actually it provides what is needed to get to the end. Do you see how he's putting his full self on the line to say, if the fault was with them, then I'm going to have to do something about them. I'm going to have to put myself, I'm going to do everything necessary to make sure that faithfulness exists on both sides. This is what the new covenant will bring into the human story. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, verse 10, is this, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's three things I want to look at here. Uh, the basic question of this text is, what's new about the new covenant? There's, there's three basic things, and I, I'm not going to say them all. Uh, I want to work up to that. But the first one that we see here is that irreducibly, biblically, truly, the new covenant that God has made with people through Jesus Christ. This is, by the way, I don't know if, I don't know if you're, you're getting this, but this is the covenant that we live in now. This is the reality. This is the relationship that God has made with humanity now through his son, Jesus. And the first thing that is said about it is that through this covenant, the law, God's ways, God's desires, God's will for our life, obedience is is in our minds, and probably even the, the more compelling image here is it's written on our hearts. You see, what God has done in Jesus Christ has changed something, not just external about us. This is another thing that we can oversimplify about faith that has incredibly vicious consequences to it, is that we can believe that when you put your faith in Jesus, it is primarily a matter of some paperwork in heaven. That your file goes from the not saved file to the saved file and then nothing else changes until you get to the end and God says, sorry, which file are you in? And then he takes out the paperwork and he finds like, oh yeah, you said the prayer way back when and so you're good to go. No, 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 no. That is a, that is a massive, dangerous reduction of the unbelievable promise of the new covenant and the power of what Jesus did. You see, the first thing that makes the new covenant new is that we are given empowerment for obedience. The first thing that makes the new covenant new is we are given empowerment for obedience. The image that I've always used for this is that we are given new taste buds, that the things that we desire change as a result of us putting our faith in Jesus, as a result of us putting ourselves under this covenant the ways of God become increasingly desirable to us over time. And this is an internal work. This is something only God can do. These are the depths of our soul that only he can reach. But those taste buds begin to change. And you know what the first indication of this empowerment for obedience is? Is it's not moral perfection overnight, sadly. It's actually often increasing frustration with our disobedience. It's an increasing awareness 
that the things that we once desired are actually things that we now are actively aware are harming us. And we become so frustrated with them. And we begin to, to uh, actually be harder on ourselves than we were before because we see these patterns so clearly in our life and we don't want them there. And we say, yeah, but I thought I had become a Christian. And what this passage is saying is, you have, your taste buds are changing and the junk food ethically that once you thought was as good as it gets is being replaced by the pure food of God. But it's going to take a while for your diet to change. It's going to take a while for you to unlearn those habits. But oh, the fact that suddenly you're realizing this is not life to the full. The fact that you're realizing that your prior definition of the good life is one that is, is more like throwing sand in your mouth rather than the pursuit of ultimate happiness and contentment. And the new covenant is saying, yeah, your heart's changing. Your desires are changing. This is also a reminder. Uh, another mistake that, that we can make about what it means to be a Christian is that it's, it's only about how we think. That if I believe the right kinds of things, then surely I'm in this file and not, not that file. And we don't allow what's up here to actually get to the point of our desires. Because here's our one responsibility with new taste buds. Right? If you're given new taste buds, what's your one responsibility? To begin to taste that which God says is now good for you. That's our only responsibility. To actually take up the ways of God and, and to, you ready? I'll use some provocative language. To put to the test whether those things are more satisfying than life as we've always known it. Sometimes the way out of habitual sin is as crazy as this sounds, as simple as it sounds, is just say no to it once. And see what it feels like in the hour or two afterwards. See what it feels like to wake up the next day without that guilt and shame on you. And then, yeah, you might fall back into it. But then, but then say no maybe, maybe twice in a row. Like, that's engaging taste buds. And that's allowing desires to change. Because if all that ever changes is your doctrine, is your belief, is, is a couple things that you now believe are true about God, but you never actually engage with God, right? This is why even the structure of Hebrews is, uh, I don't know if you remember this, this is how we introduce the entire letter, is there's kind of three movements in Hebrews. One is consider what the Son says, listen to the Son, then draw near to God, and then, and then obey Him as your, as your forerunner. This is why it's, yeah, believe certain things about God, but then you have to draw near. Then you got to start living as though those new taste buds are in there. And then what you'll find, then the last movement is, and then you'll find you begin to walk in obedience as a natural course of you following these new desires. Don't you love how the Christian faith is not start with obedience? Hey, get your stuff together, and then maybe God will want to hear from you. And then maybe God will actually speak to you. Hear how it's the exact opposite order? God's already speaking to you. He's given you the desires. And if you engage those things, if you'll just listen and taste, you'll begin to obey. This is the, other, the utter counter nature of Christianity to literally any worldview, whether religious or non-religious. It's not about moral effort in order to impress and pull a, a, a deity towards you. It's a deity who moves towards you to the very depths of you, gives you new desires, new taste buds, writes himself onto your heart, 
And then obedience comes as a response to that. You know how counter that is to everything that we normally think God requires of us? He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is beautiful. This is about as, as close to a marriage vow, I want you to hear in that, as we have. Often the relationship between God and humanity is seen as a kind of marriage. A friend of mine wrote these words about actually this passage in Jeremiah 31. He said this, he's now an Old Testament professor. He said, as the spurned lover leaves the house, this is Israel, this is Israel in exile. As Israel leaves the house, even as other lovers take his place, he leaves a promise to the wife of his youth. He leaves a promise to us and the children of their marriage and the neighborhood that has clung to the hope of their marriage all this time that this will not ultimately end. I will return, and when I return, I will make you pure. I will take you as my virgin bride, and as you have forsaken me now, you will forsake all others. You see, if the marriage is separated because of our unfaithfulness, the only way for God to fully restore relationship is to somehow create faithfulness in us. Do you hear how intimate that is? Do you hear how committed that is to us? And do you hear how that is only possible by the creator of our souls? We cannot do this for each other. You will never do this for yourself. All of your effort, all of your striving. You need one who is so cosmically other than you and yet who loves you so deeply to come and do this kind of work. And the only step that you have to take is to remain, is to continue, is to put yourself in the path of that faithfulness and love. And he says, and if you will do that, I'll be God to you. If you do that, I'll say, mine over your life. Because that's what he's saying here. I'll be God to them. The, the literal language here is, I will be a, a God to them and they will be people to me. They will be a people to me. In other words, mine, mine, mine is what God says. And he says, all you got to say is, is in return, mine to God. That's all that you have to do is you get to claim me. And if you claim me, I claim you. Isn't that crazy? This is how intimately he comes alongside of us. This is how much he pursues us. In spite of our faithfulness, in the midst of our unfaithfulness, what's new about the new covenant is that there is this genuine empowerment for obedience. Verse 11, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is such an interesting thing. What this is getting at is the second thing that makes the new covenant new, and there's any number of ways to put this, is this is sort of the, um, uh, I'll put it the fanciest way that I can think of, the kind of democratization of the, of the presence of God, you can think of it. The, um, the, the fact that uh, in the Old Testament, it seems like among the people of God, there was always this remnant who were faithful to God, right? Like you don't have a total lack, this is another misreading of the Old Testament, you don't have this total lack of faithfulness. You have a lack of faithfulness among the people of God as a whole, but you have this remnant always within it that is faithful. Right? Think of the major figures of the Old Testament, Moses and Abraham and these kind of people and Ruth and, and these are faithful people. These are people who are told to be faithful, but they are clearly the exception, not the rule. 
And the fancy theological language for that is they're a remnant. They're a little teeny tiny bit among the whole of faithfulness among the whole of unfaithfulness. What this is saying is now, no, if you're part of the people of God, what characterizes us as a whole is that faithfulness that God himself is bringing about from the least to the greatest. The reason why I like the language of of the kind of democratization of the presence of God is that also in the Old Testament, you had all of this mediating of the presence of God. You had to go to someone in order to connect to God. You had to go to a place. You had to go to a person, right? You had to go to the temple. You had to go to a priest. You had to go to the tabernacle in order to be connected to God. There was someone, another human being, who stood between you and God. What this is saying is that's not a thing in the new covenant. We have direct access to God. This is why, as crazy as it is, the New Testament can call you and I priests, priestesses. It can call the church the temple of God. It can call your very body the temple of God because you now have direct access to what people could only approach through someone else and approach trembling in the Old Covenant. Now we have direct access to that. As close as your mask is to your face right now is the presence of God in your life. Arguably closer. Probably the breath that you're breathing into that. Which is probably why the New Testament actually calls the the Spirit of God what is internal to us. That internal presence, the Spirit of God, because the same word is breath. That's how close He has made Himself to us. This also means that, that the, the people of God now should not be a, a massively hierarchical people. Right? I don't have more access to God than you do. You don't have to go through me to receive things from God. From the least to the greatest, right? That's what this is saying. It's saying that the gospel, and we talk about this a lot as a church, that the gospel, that the new covenant, that God's new way of interacting with people has this way of humbling the high and exalting the lowly. In other words, putting us on equal plane. At the feet of Jesus, there is this beautiful equality that the church is meant to bring into the world with us, such that the world would say, how can that happen? How do the powerful and privileged and those who normally get, how do they give and be brought low And how do those who are normally seen as low and marginalized and less than and not enough, man, it seems like this is a place where people are dignified, where people are protected, where people are well cared for. We say, yeah, this is something only possible, again, through something external to us, through God's work in making himself available to all of us, such that the thing that we all have in common is the thing but most central to all of our lives, right? We share the name of Jesus. Old covenant, very much based on what nation you were a part of, where you were born, what your family name is. This one, are you named by the name of Jesus or not? Because if you are, you're family. And you're just like me in the deepest ways that matter most. Now, let's do the hard work, right? Unity among the the. The New Testament people of God is not something we ourselves achieve. It is something that the New Testament says we maintain. It's already been bought for us in Christ. But it's really hard work, is it not, Jacob's Well? Is it not this country in 2021? It's really hard work maintaining that, but it's glorious work. 
Because the world is meant to look in and say there's something different happening among that people. Where they're actually able to love each other across ethnic lines, love each other across political divides, love each other across differences of opinion on masks and vaccines and all of these various things. Those people seem to be figuring it out. How are they doing it? And it's saying, well, it's nothing about us. It's not how lovely we are. We're just named by the same name and we're maintaining something that he has won for us. We love him that much. All of our eyes are so much on him that we can't help but move toward one another. Finally, it says, verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And in some ways, the last one is what the other two are deeply based on. I almost see this passage as like the foundation of the first two is this one. Because apart from this, the first two are utterly and completely impossible. Are utterly and completely unthinkable. In fact, God would not be good if he brought the first two about without bringing the third about. Because his presence cannot dwell internally to any of us unless something is done with the mess that we are. You see, God's holiness cannot dwell among that which is impure. This is the whole lesson of the sacrificial system, which we'll spend like the next month talking about. The whole lesson is God does not dwell. God is so holy and perfect and other than us that he has to remove himself from us from the the impurity that we simply are. And so how can he now call us temples unless something has happened to the mess that we are? How can he dwell internally? How can we be a people united under his name when all of us bring mess and failure to the table? When all of us hurt and wound one another, how can there be peace and unity among us? What gets us back to the table, in other words? And it's that, well, we're called to forgive as we've been forgiven. Many times, that's the only thing that can get a bunch of people at war with each other back to the table. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is you, your kid messes up, your kid is disobedient. And instead of giving them the agreed-upon punishment, you say, in this case, I'm, I'm letting you go free. Our founding pastor, Pastor Reed, said, it's good to give your kids mercy every now and then. They need a lot of structure. They need consistency. But every now and then, it's good to say, this is mercy and how does it feel? Because you, you watch a kid experience that, and there's this unbelievable sense of, wait, what? what? Huh? You, I, so I don't have to, no, no. I'm not going to get taken from it, no. Right? And there is a sense in which we are all, even if you deny this, even if you live in deep denial of this, there is a sense in which we all know what we deserve. This is why most of us are so darn hard on ourselves. Because we do deserve that. Because we know our personal thoughts. We know our failures. We know the secrets we've never told anyone. We know our moral failures that we hope will never be broadcast anywhere. And we know that if we got what we deserve, whether it's from God, whether you believe in God or not, if we got what we deserve, we would be utterly destroyed. And it says the only one who can fully and accurately evaluate you. In fact, the one who knows all of that stuff, all of those secrets, 
all of those unseen private failures, that one has chosen to not give you what you deserve. And stunningly, it's not because he winked an eye at it, right? This is, this is actually what makes too much mercy with your kids really dangerous. is because they'll begin to doubt that you're good. They'll begin to doubt that you know what you're doing. Because some of that is really good for them to disobey and then receive consequences for that. that that's how we learn. And so how can God be good in giving us mercy? It's because of this. It's because your sin has received what it deserves. It's received to the uttermost exactly what it deserves. It received it there on a cross. That the very one who knows the depths of your being took it upon himself to pay all of the debt. Right? Like think of, here's how, how I often think of this, is think of like your greatest sin struggle and the way you feel when you fail in that area and the weight of that, the condemnation of that. The sense of, 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 um, not, of unworthiness that you feel in that moment. That sense of shame of I'm not good enough and if anyone knew this. Just think of the sum total of all of those moments in your life falling in one moment upon you. This is what Jesus did. Here's what's crazy. He did it for all of us. In one moment. Bored. Cried out. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? This is how God can not give us what we deserve. He's merciful toward our iniquity. See, the great mystery of this passage to Old Testament scholars, to people who would read this and say, yeah, but how? How can God be merciful toward our iniquity? I don't get it. If he could be merciful toward our iniquities uh, without, some, without anyone paying the penalty, why didn't he just do it? And the answer was, well, no, he's good. He is a good judge. He is going to meet out punishment. Yeah, but how? If it's not on us, then who? And the answer that the early church is wrestling with is, the who is him. He does it. And then you remember and you go back and you say, wait, this is, this is how it always was in the covenant. That he committed that if this thing fails, he would put himself on line. He would bear the penalty for this thing going wrong. Even though 0% of this thing going wrong was on him. Are you getting what this is saying about our God? Are you getting why this is new? Right? New covenant, the word that's used here. There's, there's two main words for new in the New Testament. One is, is new neos, like uh, neo, I am neo. Um, that's neos. That's new like the, the iPhone 12 coming out after the iPhone 11. Ooh, there's a new phone out. The word that's used here is kainos. It's, it's new of a kind. It's, uh, it's Steve Jobs that day that he was like, well, what if your whole record album was in your pocket, right? Like the first day that he revealed it, and he was like, oh, and that's kainos. That's new of a kind. This is saying the world doesn't have a category for this. This isn't an updating of the old covenant. This isn't an updating and improvement. This is what the world has been longing for that it had no category for. And when it came, we had to completely reread the whole story and say, it was God all along committing himself. It was God's grace undergirding all of this. And now he's gone to the uttermost to make sure that we can be beings in which the very presence, the holy, pure presence of God can reside. I think the next promise is better. And I will remember their sins no more. Can you imagine spending 10 minutes not remembering your sin? 
you imagine 10 minutes not remembering the ways that you've been sinned against? There may be no more biblically compelling way of talking about the full work of Jesus that we await one day than that it be said, sin will be remembered no more. Fully expunged from our individual memories and our collective memory. All of it healed. All of it forgiven. All of it purified. I've been reading a book by a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf, and he says that if, if this is not where we're headed, then there really isn't hope. He says if, if, if the memory of God is not capable of completely doing away with sin, then we will spend eternity wondering, yeah, but did he really forget? He remembers and he remembers. And so at any moment, he's like, no, the joy of what awaits us is the full reality that our sin will be remembered no more. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that even hard to wrap your mind around? It's supposed to. This is supposed to ignite our imagination to say, man, what would that existence be like? And it says it's coming. Because here's the reality. This new covenant exists in this fascinating overlap of, of ages that we talk about. And that's a whole other sermon for another day. But there's a sense in which all of the promises of the new covenant have already begun to be fulfilled, but, bo- but also await their full fulfillment. Let me just show you what I mean. It's like the law of God has been written in our hearts, but us becoming fully obedient beings, we await that one day. But that work has begun. And, it, and the work that's begun proves that one day that will come in its fullness. That, that the only thing that we will desire in the new heavens and the new earth is that which God says is for our good and for our thriving. Oh, bring that day. The work of unity, of Jesus bringing people together high and low across all kinds of barriers, it's begun. But it's begun imperfectly. It's, it, it, it begins in fits and starts. But we await a day when we will all be unified around the throne, singing praise to his name, unified around one thing, the name of Jesus. That day is coming. So we work toward it as a promise. And yeah, we have been dealt with mercifully in our iniquities. And God is unremembering our sin in some ways. But look, you got sin out ahead of you. I've got sin out ahead of me. And yet God is really, truly forgiving your sin. He doesn't live in your past the way that you do. He's doing that now, but there will come a day where that law written in our hearts is also met with the unremembering, with the non-memory of sin behind us. Man, doesn't that sound like glory? In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And this is not to bag. This is not saying, now we have a good thing, we used to have a bad thing. This is saying, we used to have a good thing, now we have an unspeakably great thing. And growing old, and is ready to vanish away. In other words, this is it. This is it. This is God's final declaration of how he deals with people. And so will you receive this invitation to be changed, to be brought into a different kind of community in this world, and to have your sin dealt with once and for all or not. Because this is it. This is God's deal with humanity. And I shudder to say, it's not going to get better than this. How could it get better than this? That's the invitation today. Let's pray.